Thanks very much, Matt. Well, it, it feels like we're absolutely flying through this summer series. I think it was three weeks ago that I was talking on Jesus and the pigs, and all of a sudden I'm now doing this one. So things are going very quickly, and it's so good to be here this morning and to, to dive into the next story that we have today. So as Matt's already said, this is our summer series. It's going to be six encounters looking at the Gospel of Mark, and this kind of brings up questions for us around who was this man Jesus? What's our response to be? What did he come to do? So I tried to bring that out last time. It's going to be much of the same today, trying to get us to think, what is Jesus asking us to do this morning? Now, if you were here last week, Nathaniel brought a message from Mark 6, and that was about feeding the thousands. And we're going to be moving a little bit further into Mark this morning. We're in Mark 9, and the action just keeps on coming. So this one is Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And I've called it Down the Mountain. And in the background there, we have a mountain that is pretty much what they would say very accurate to what it would have been like and the topic we're talking about this morning. So Mark 9, we're going to be reading from verse 14 through to 29. Jesus heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. Let's read this together. should come up there for you. When they came to the other... When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth. And becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirits, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So there's so much to dig into in this passage. There's so much to be said, which we're going to get into in a moment. But I think it's really important just to start with a bit of context. So our passage, of course, is Mark 9. But the Bible was written as a collective whole. So it's sometimes, well, I think it's always important to look slightly before and slightly after when we're reading. 
And what's come before this is called the transfiguration. Now, that'll be familiar to a lot of you, but also if you're quite new to church, that word can seem a bit bizarre. So I think it's important we just spend a couple of minutes thinking, how does this impact our story for today? And why is it actually important? So just before what we're reading today, Jesus takes three of his disciples, which is Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain where Jesus, it says, is transfigured before them. Now, the word transfiguration, it refers to a change in the form of physical appearance. So he changed in the way that he looked. And as we read it, we're not reading it today, but it can seem a little bit odd to us because you have Jesus talking to two dead prophets. You have Moses and Elijah. You have a cloud which talks. And then you actually have Peter who pretty much to form doesn't know what to say, feels a little bit awkward and shouts, oh, I'll make some tents for you guys to dwell in. And actually, that is the last thing that they wanted to do. But actually, what's happening behind this scene is glorious, and it's really important that we note this this morning as we come into what we're reading. This is all about Jesus' glory and his divinity shining through. This is almost like a preview or a taster of Jesus coming in glory coming in the end times, his kingdom. It's an amazing picture of what it's like to see the glory of Christ and how amazingly fortunate these three are to actually witness that. It's hard to just think about what that must have been like for those three. You're going up a mountain and all of a sudden this scene that I've just described unveils itself. I wonder what their conversations would have been as they came back down the mountain, the three of them probably bumping shoulders and saying, what was that? Look at Jesus. What was that about? We had the cloud. Why did you say about the tents? What a ridiculous thing to say. All of these things, of course it doesn't say it in here, but just picture that, the scene and how amazing that would have been. But I love this. Almost instantly as they come back down, Matt already alluded to it earlier, it's almost this, the sign of the kingdom that it's now but it's not yet. And as they've just seen this mind-blowing, this awesome scene of God's glory. They would have been just full of wonder at this. They come down and at the bottom of the mountain is just a scene of pure chaos. They must have come down and seen it and thought, right, let's go back up. Let's have a few more hours up here. But they could not avoid it. And it's just a very sudden reminder to us of the now and the not yet of the kingdom. There are amazing moments, breakthrough moments, seeing Jesus. We are wowed, filled with wonder, but actually we have a job to do. And this world is so, so fallen, and there is still a lot of work to be done. So my first point is exactly this, filled with wonder. So they're met with a crowded scene, as we've just said, people everywhere. And immediately in our passage, it says that the crowd were greatly amazed, and they ran up to Jesus. So this is why it's important to just look at the transfiguration, because this doesn't make sense unless we've read that. And many people would suggest that the reason the crowd were amazed and in awe and in wonder and ran to Jesus is because he could have had an afterglow of coming down from the mountain. So imagine this amazing picture. He comes down and everybody looks at him and instantly they are struck with just awesome wonder. Jesus is here and he is beautiful. So that would explain why they run to him despite what's going on in the chaos at the bottom. So can I just encourage us, whatever happens today, let's just come with wonder today. Let's appreciate Jesus for who he is. Let's see his beauty in this story, in everything we're doing, in the worship where Alex is leading us so well. Let's just bring that to Jesus and be filled with wonder this morning. 
Now, I'm sure, like me, many of you have loved the recent Olympics that we've just been having on for the last month or so. Now, I'm the kind of guy, if you know me at all, I love my sports, and I would happily sit from dawn until dusk for four weeks on the sofa, only getting up, occasionally to go to the toilet, a little bit of food. But other than that, I'm fine. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything else. It's just me and my sport, and I love it. So that means, obviously, that's unfortunate for Prisca in that I have to be an active husband. But what I've actually been able to gain from that is I've seen a lot of the action from the Olympics, and I've just been overawed by the talent, by the dedication, by the skill that some of these athletes have. It is mind-blowing. I think we can forget that because we're not actually at the top of that field. And we can just think, oh, well done. You just got on a pole and went over a 20-foot. But it is, it is awesome what these guys are able to do. What these men and women can do takes years of preparation. And I watch it, and frankly, I just think that is amazing. I love the variety. I love the drama. I love the entertainment. There's lots of different disciplines. And I love the stories when you have a comeback, when you see someone who's been riddled with injuries, people who are actually from a nation that may be war-torn or they don't have any representatives or they're tiny, there's only a few thousand people on the island, and yet there's one person there representing. I absolutely love it. I love the story of it all. And so we've spoken so far about the wonder in relation to Jesus and his glory in this story. And in an earthly sense, I do sometimes think maybe the Olympics is a, is a bit of a parallel for us and the wonder that we feel when we look at some of these athletes doing what we think is impossible, but clearly they defy that. So many times over the last few weeks, I've gone, wow, I've called Prisca in about a million times to be like, look at this, rewind, watch it again. That's amazing. And Prisca goes, yeah, it's all right. It's okay. <laughs> so that's what I'm working with. It's, it's not ideal. But all of this just leaves you with a sense of wonder. And I think perhaps my favorite moment of this Olympic Games has been watching Venezuela Yulimar Rojas. Now, you may remember her. She's a triple jumper. She is the best in the world by a long way. And it was interesting. The whole thing was not about a gold medal for her because we knew she was going to win. It was actually, could she break the world record? And everybody in the stadium knew it. She already got the gold nailed down. And so I'm actually just going to show you a clip which, for me, sums up what wonder is to us today as we watch some of these athletes. So it's just a minute long. Esther, thank you. We're just going to watch this and look at the wonder on display. Yulimar Roas of Venezuela, an Olympic champion. Can she put some icing on the cake? No. Yes, I said no, but what about that? That was ridiculous. She looked like she bailed out halfway through the leap. That is how good she is. It's a world record. 15 meters, 67. And finally, the relaxation from the Olympic gold being put to bed. The last jump, she saved her best. And finally, 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 Roas is the new world record holder. That was just extraordinary. What a, what a moment inside the Japanese Olympic Stadium. <laughs> In case you didn't hear that, Matthew just said he thinks he could do that. So <laughs> feel free to have a word after the service. 
So I just absolutely love that. I've watched that on loop many times. I love the facial expressions. I love the sheer joy. And what you notice about wonder and joy is that you cannot keep it in. It just bursts out of you. And that's what I think. When I picture this scene at the bottom of the mountain, people coming to Jesus, I imagine people going absolutely crazy, running through the crowds, beaming faces. People cannot contain themselves because this is Jesus in all his glory. And I think that's such an important precursor for us today as we look at this text. So my question to you would be this. Do you ever think about what it's going to be like to see Jesus face to face? How often do we actually think about what's to come? We think about eternity. Do you actually think about what it's going to be like to see Jesus face to face in all his glory and wonder in his true form? It's definitely something to look forward to. It's something we should ponder more. I know we find it difficult, and it's going to be absolutely glorious on that day. But, and as this story so helpfully reminds us, because we can't yet see Jesus face to face in that way, we are very prone to doubt. So in our present lives, we are overcome with doubt again and again because we cannot yet see but we are called to believe. And just beautifully, there is doubt absolutely everywhere in this story. So let's unpack that now. So my second point, help my unbelief. So doubt is a feeling that impacts us all. We can't escape it. We all have doubts over different things. We have fears in different areas of our lives, but it affects us all, so we can all relate to that. And so often we have to see something to believe it, don't we? Or maybe you're the other way. How many conversations have you had where someone's not going to believe what you're saying unless you can prove it to them on the spot? People love to be able to see something and then believe it. It's really frustrating when you're having that conversation with someone and you know you can't actually put it in front of them. Or maybe you're the other way around. Maybe you are that cynical person who says, yeah, I like your point, but show me. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to trust. And the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that it flips this. Jesus actually requires us to believe and have faith, and then we see. And that's the problem here. Everybody is thinking, if you're going to heal this person, prove it to me, and then I'll believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And actually, the kingdom of God doesn't work like that. Jesus asks us to put faith in him, and then he can do anything. Anything is possible for him. But I'm afraid we get it the wrong way around. So a major theme to come out of this passage is one of faithlessness. And we can see that in verse 19 when Jesus rebukes people by saying, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You can feel the frustration there. People are not getting the message that Jesus is trying to send. People do not have faith. So this is a scene of pure failure. And there is faithlessness everywhere, everywhere you look. So let's just break that down slightly into the different groups of people. Because you might be thinking, what do you actually mean by that? Well, I'm going to start with the disciples, because I love the disciples. They're such a helpful guide for us, but they are so human, and they get things so wrong. And I think the reason that there is a heated argument in the first place is because the disciples have failed, as it says by the Father's account, they've failed to cast out this spirit. They've not been able to do it. And later on, we're going to touch on this more, but it says it was through their lack of prayer, which was a lack of communion with God. They didn't rely on him for their strength. Verse 18b, so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So it's not up for discussion. The disciples failed magnificently and Jesus was nowhere to be seen. And then the Pharisees, 
And then we presume that they're jumping on top of the disciples because they've gone, hey, look, I told you, you guys don't have any power. And the Pharisees are constantly waiting for Jesus and his disciples to slip up because they're constantly picking and probing and trying to catch them out. So this would have been amazing for the Pharisees to see. They'd have really enjoyed the fact that they couldn't do this. And I'm sure they were the first ones to let them know, I told you, you do not have the strength to do this. Where's your Jesus now? But what I like about this, almost a bit of, a, bit of irony, is that notice how the Pharisees don't then jump in and do it for them. You would think if the Pharisees are the righteous men of God, that they would have said, right, move out the way. We're going to show you how to do it. And they didn't. All they did was shout from the sidelines and hurl rocks verbally. And they didn't actually step in once to say, right, we've got this. So that shows a lack of faith from them as well. So they're no better. And you'd think surely they'd want to get one up on the disciples. They'd have loved to take that opportunity, but they didn't because they couldn't. And then the crowds, they're not covering themselves with glory either. We see that in verse 26 when it says, And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. So the crowd thought, even when Jesus was there, they thought, No, not going to happen. He looks dead. He's not moving. So they again were in that camp. Unless they saw it, unless they saw him rise, they were not going to believe. They didn't say, Jesus, we trust you. And therefore, the boy's going to rise. They're like, no, look at him. You've done what you said you would do, but he's still there lying like a corpse. Complete unbelief. And they were questioning his power. Now, New Testament commentator Alan Cole, he says this, the scene when Jesus arrives is a picture of what happens when we try and go it alone. I find that so helpful. And as I was preparing this message, I read that quote, and it reminded me of something, a situation that me and Prisca had the other week um, in our flat where... I think it was very early in the morning, I was half asleep, and I managed to pull our shower door, clean off our shower. I've no idea how I did it. I was semi-conscious. Prisca wasn't impressed. And so naturally, we get a man in, because I'm not capable of doing these things. And so the guy comes in to come and fix our shower door. It's all going well. We get about 95% of the way through. I'm going in, I'm giving him drinks, checking his progress. It's all good. He's got one more bit to do. I walk past the door. I go and sit down with Prisca in the lounge. And the next moment, we hear an almighty smash and a thud that deafens us both. And we both look at each other going, I know exactly what's happened here. Because as I'd left the bathroom, I'd seen that he turned away from the panel, final panel going in the shower, and he just left it unattended because he thought, I can do three things at once. And as I went back in, he was literally stood there with his arms on his head, complete embarrassment. And... The bath, obviously where there should be water, it was full of glass, tiny fragments of glass, three quarters of the way up the bath. So there's a full bath of this glass, which was hilarious. But he found it humiliating, and he said, I'm so sorry, this has never happened to me. Then I said, do you normally bring someone with you? He said, yes, I normally have my boss, but he's not here today. So he'd taken on too much, tried to do too much by himself, and failed to recognize that actually he needed, he needed some help. He wasn't sufficient. But of course, he came back two days later, and who did he come back with? He came back with his boss, almost like with his tail between his legs. His boss was behind him. And of course, his boss held the door, and he put the final piece in, and we had our shower back. Although we have a massive gash in the bath now where it's smashed onto the side. So we still need more work on that. But the point is, this guy then did realize through his failure, I need help. I'm not actually sufficient to do this, and he brought someone to help. And so often that's us. We go it alone, and we don't realize that actually we don't have what it takes which is quite a painful lesson for us when it happens. 
So I've mentioned the many people in this story who lack faith, and you might be saying, all right, give me some hope in this, because at the moment, this isn't making me feel particularly good. Well, there is a shining light in this story, but again, not because he has so much faith. So it's kind of an interesting story in that way, in that the boy's father comes out as a shining example to us, but maybe not in the way that we'd expect. Because the father actually says this in verse 23. He says, if you can do anything, if. And Jesus replies, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Completely comes back and rebukes him straight away. Now we can read this and go, oh, come on, of course Jesus can do it. What a silly thing for the man to say. Jesus is right there. But actually, we all do that, don't we? We all think, actually, Lord, if you could break through in this situation, that'd be great. If you could please help me out of this situation in my family or at work, but we don't actually believe it's going to come through. God wants to help our unbelief this morning. He wants to help those areas where we're struggling to trust in him. And that's exactly what the father does. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. So there's a recognition there that he doesn't have enough, but he has something to work with. He realizes his inadequacy. He realizes that he needs Jesus. And it actually is such a a humble statement of like, "I, I do believe, but I need so much more. Can you please help me? And that's what Jesus responds to. Now, it's interesting how Jesus enters this scene. Straight away, he asks some really basic questions that you might turn your nose up and go, that's an odd question. He comes in at verse 16 and says, what are you arguing about with them? And anyone here who's read any of the scripture, you know that Jesus knows what's going on and you know that he knows everything. And so actually you think, what are you getting out there? Surely you come down and you know what you're going to find, Jesus. And actually what he's doing is he's drawing the attention away from the disciples because he realizes that they're drowning here in trying to take too much on. They've failed, they're in trouble, and Jesus is directing the attention back on him. He's coming in and he's saving the situation and he's basically coming in and rescuing them. It's such an important thing that we need to get our heads around. And it's just a great demonstration that in all our situations, if we look to Jesus, he is there He is faithful. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us. And this is an amazing example here. The disciples were probably thinking, oh, Jesus, you need to come down now. Where have you gone? And he turns up, and all the eyes are on him, and the disciples can go, right, Jesus, we're with you. We trust you. Uh, Tim Keller, American pastor and author, says this. find this really, really insightful. Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness, to access the presence of God. The boy's father says, I'm not faithful, I'm riddled with doubts, and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges, but help me. That's saving faith, faith in Jesus instead of in oneself. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us, and if you wait for that, you'll never come into the presence of God. You must admit that you're not righteous and that you need help. When you can say that, you're approaching God to worship. Really, really helpful. Don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness. Are we willing to admit that we need help this morning? And I find really interesting, if we go to the parallel account of this, so Matthew tells the same story, but I really like what he says here. So we're just going to go over to Matthew 17, verse 20. And this is really important what he says. It's the same principle. The disciples say, why couldn't I cast the spirit out? Jesus says this in Matthew. 
because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That tells us that God can work with a little. God can work when we don't feel like we're enough. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to be completely doubt-free. Scripture says, if we have the faith of a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, then God can use that. What a comfort that is to us this morning. If we say, Lord, help my unbelief, help me to put my faith in you this morning, whatever I'm facing, then nothing is impossible for him. Not for us, but for him, because he works through us. And we know what happens with the mustard seed. It grows big. It's huge. See them all over the Middle East and Africa. It's huge. But it starts with a tiny seed. It's an amazing picture of what our faith can do. So practically, what can we do to overcome doubt and replace it with faith in God? We've spoken about these characters, how there's a lack of faith. So how can we be equipping ourselves? Well, for me personally, I find recalling a key discipline, actually reflecting and recalling the goodness of God. So for me, journaling, brought my journal with me this morning, this is a key discipline for me that helps me in all circumstances. So some of you, I know, will journal already. Some of you will think, nope, it's like a diary. I don't like that. Some of you just don't like writing, which is fine. But for me, this is so helpful because whenever doubt creeps in, wherever things are not going right, I've got years and years, pages and pages, where I can look back a day, a week, a month, a year, and I know at some point that Jesus has already answered this prayer once. If it's a failure, if it's to do with a job, it's to do with a relationship, if it's a family thing, if it's a marriage thing, whatever it is, I know this isn't going to be the first time, and I literally can go through and say, ah, yeah, 4th of September, 2018, God did this, he promised this over me, and it just removes that doubt, because although I can't see at the moment that God is working, although I may feel like I can't trust you for this at the moment, he's already done it before in my life. So for me, such a good tool crushes my doubt, fortifies my faith. Journaling is just one example. There are many, but for me, such a helpful one of killing doubt and fixing my eyes on Jesus. So my final point, prayer is a must. And I'm focusing on this point to finish because I think it's pivotal to this passage, pivotal for us. And the importance of prayer, if there's one thing that you remember from this morning, I'd love you to just remember this. Because the disciples were baffled. We've already read it. They could not understand why they were unable to drive out the Spirit. Notice how they wait, because they're so embarrassed, they wait until they're on their own with Jesus at the end, and they say, Jesus, why could we not cast it out? They'd be absolutely mortified. They'd be doubting themselves. They'd want answers. And what Jesus says to them is so helpful, and that he simply says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that their lack of prayer, not just in that they didn't physically pray as they did it, but actually it meant that they weren't in the right mindset, they weren't prepared, they weren't spending time with Jesus, he wasn't in their thinking. They thought, I'm going to go this by myself. They didn't actually rely on Jesus' breakthrough. They thought, we've got this. And as we can see, they really didn't have it. They failed. And it must have been pretty humbling. So I can ask you, are there situations or struggles in your life that are at play this morning 
that are still there because you haven't actually turned it over to prayer yet? Are there things that you're struggling with and you're just resolutely saying, no, I've got this? Are there things you need to just give over to prayer this morning and say, Jesus, I can't do it. I have a little bit of faith. Please help my unbelief. Please come and help. I'm sure there are things for all of us this morning. And we don't know the specifics of why the disciples didn't pray, but we can guess maybe it was the crowd. There would have been such a sense of pressure. They would have felt like, we need to perform here. We need to do something. All these people are waiting on us. Maybe they were pressured, a bit of peer pressure. Maybe they wanted to prove the Pharisees wrong. We've already said that the Pharisees were always trying to undermine them. Perhaps they saw this as the glory moment where we finally quiet them. And then even afterwards, you may think, why didn't they pray afterwards? If you fail, surely then you go, right, prayer. But it seems like they didn't do that either, probably because they were just so downhearted from what had just happened. But the application is clear for us. If we commit to prayer, that's us actively handing over the reins in whatever situation we're in, and Jesus will come through for us just as he does here. You can read, this is why I love the book of Mark. Read through all the gospel. Read through everything that Mark says. It's repeatedly Jesus coming onto the scene and answering people's prayers. Moving, healing, teaching, telling parables. He's always doing something that breaks through into people's lives and they go, wow, you're my saviour. I'm going to follow you. That's always his pattern. And when the father says, if you can do anything, we've already mentioned it once, Jesus flies back with this in verse 23, all things are possible for those who believe. Now you might think, does that mean I can basically pray whatever I like? And that means that anything is open to me because I have Jesus? Well, there's a couple ways of interpreting it. I think one of them's helpful, one of them isn't. Um, it's almost, there's almost like a little English test at school where you have to mark the, the grammar, which one's correct, which one's wrong. For me, the first one at the top, I don't think it means everything is possible if you have a certain amount or quality of faith. Because you look at the father, he didn't have much faith, and it was pretty weak. He said, help my unbelief. So he didn't win on that score. It makes much more sense for us to take this as everything is possible if we have faith in what Jesus can do for us. So it's not about what we can do, it's what Jesus can do if we actually have faith in him. And theologian John Stott, he supports this by saying, it's all about the relationship and trust between you and Jesus. It's that mustard seed principle even if we have a little bit, put it in Jesus and it will grow. And I find this verse helpful. 1 John 5.14 kind of qualms that point about, well, can I pray anything then? It says this, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So it means we're free to ask what we will, but if it's in line with his will then it will come to be. If it's not, we can't just pray anything selfishly. Clearly says in Scripture that we've got to align ourselves with God. And I found this Tim Keller tweet last week that was really timely. Um, And he says this. He says, The basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mould my will to his. And that sums it up really nicely. It's not about what we can get, what we can take. It's about saying, Jesus, you're in control. I'm trusting you for the outcome here. Help me to align myself with you and what you want for me. And just to show that actually we're not left where we are, if we just fast forward in our minds to Acts chapter 3, so you go all the way through the Gospels, you get to Acts, you've got the same people, the same disciples who went up that mountain 
You've got the same disciples who were squabbling at the bottom and could not do what they wanted to do. You've then got an amazing example in Acts where actually Peter is able to say to a lame beggar, get up and walk. He physically pulls him up and there is no lack of faith there. There is no hurling rocks from Pharisees. You can see that they've progressed from I've not got enough faith here, relying on myself. They've spent all this time with Jesus. They've seen him die. It's now their job to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they have the faith required. So there's a journey that we go on. We're not all here self, self-made in the right spot. It's a journey with Jesus. Professor and theologian Victor Babajidi Cole, he says this on what it means to have belief versus unbelief. He says, while unbelief sees impossibilities, faith sees possibilities because faith draws on the unlimited resources of heaven. If only you could say that to the disciples. But this morning, let's realize that we can draw on the unlimited resources of heaven this morning. So no matter how we're feeling, whether we're feeling like I literally have no energy, no faith for this circumstance, you need an injection, we need Jesus to show up, we need Jesus to break through, there are unlimited resources for us to call on. But we have to actually get on our knees, we have to pray, we have to speak to Jesus, we have to invite him into our situation. And let's be honest, we'd all love to stay up the mountain. As I said earlier, these three would have loved to stay where they were. It's amazing when we see those glory points, we really have a great time, we meet with Jesus, we feel like we're making great progress, and then he says, right, down you go, back to your day job. Monday morning tomorrow, you need to go back into the office and be a light. You need to go back to church, you need to go back to wherever you are, and you think, oh no, I'd really like to just stay in this space. If I could just stay here until you come back to earth, that'd be really helpful. He doesn't say that. He wants us to go back down into the valley and to be a light. So we're not even called to stay here. This is not it. This is not the destination either. We're supposed to go outside and to be a light. As he came down with his glory shining, that power is in us. We're to go out and do the same. And we would need prayer if we're going to do that, to fight that unbelief. So one day we're going to see his face. We're going to be overcome with the kind of wonder we can only imagine at this point. The Olympics are going to fade into complete insignificance compared to what we're going to see on that day. But let's just keep casting our minds forward. Let's recall, write it down, pray, think to myself, these are the promises that God's given to me. And let's put our trust in Jesus for everything we're going through this morning. And let's be a people of faith. Let's choose faith over fear.